Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Divya Ganesan, the correspondent from Real Talk, and this week, Isaiah Taylor, Madeline Mays, Olivia Becker, and I had the honor of speaking with Anna Salvatore, the 18-year-old founder of High School SCOTUS a blog she founded in early 2018 with the goal of analyzing Supreme Court cases that affect high schoolers. Anna founded her blog with recognition that the judicial branch is the least understood part of our government. Yet, courts are relevant to every aspect of our lives. Having Anna on in the wake of RBG's passing and just days after the announcement of Amy Coney Barrett as the nominee to replace her made the conversation all the more fascinating. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm Divya Ganesan. I'm a senior from Palo Alto, California, and I'm the co-founder of Real Talk, which is an organization to teach and engage high school students in civil discourse. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I'm a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm extremely passionate about creating a sense of community amongst everyone, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum. Hi, my name is Olivia Becker. I am a high school senior from New York City. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also NextGen's Director of Outreach and Engagement on a national level, and I help with the civic forums in New York City. I'm really passionate about using dialogue and deliberation, whether it's this or through a more written form that you're familiar with, to bridge divides and decrease the partisanship in our country. Hi, my name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a senior at Benjamin Franklin High School, and also I'm a lead civic fellow for Next Generation Politics. I'm also a part of various different political programs, and I am just interested to close the gap between bipartisan divide and to eliminate belligerence across uh, different political parties and such. My name is Anna Salvatore. I founded a blog called High School SCOTUS in March 2018, SCOTUS standing for Supreme Court of the United States to write about the Supreme Court in cases that affected high schoolers. Since then, 14 other teenagers from across the country, ranging from Florida to Oklahoma to California, joined and helped me write about oral arguments and opinions that came out through the court. I'll be a freshman at Princeton starting next fall, but for now, I'm on a gap year and interning at Lawfare, a national security blog. Just wanted to get more into the backstory of you starting High School SCOTUS, right? So your passion for for the Supreme Court, what really motivated you to start that? And then how did you go about recruiting people and soliciting people for interviews? So my interest in the law was random. There aren't lawyers in my family and I had never ever considered becoming a lawyer. I thought all of it was so boring, but I was interested in politics beforehand. So one morning in a study hall in my freshman year, I stumbled across an article about a Supreme Court immigration case. I read through the whole article, read through the oral argument transcript linked, which is the record of everything said during an argument at the court, the lawyers arguing their case and the justices interrogating the lawyers. And it was fascinating. For some reason, the arguments were understandable, clear, relevant to to people's everyday lives, I could tell, and funny even at certain points. So from there, I learned as much about the court as I could. And eventually, a few steps later, a blog emerged as to how interview subjects came onto the radar, I just started with people whom I was interested in who are accessible on Twitter. That was the easiest because I could just DM a law professor and say, would you be interested in talking with me or find their email online? And eventually it progressed to where 
a professor would maybe recommend someone I could talk with. And it was just a lovely chain of events where eventually judges and a court artist and many, many journalists came and shared their thoughts about the court on the blog. It's not very common that you find someone of this age that is particularly interested in that topic with a focus on court cases. I think that we mainly are focused on presidential politics and local level politics, but not much in actual law, which is kind of interesting. So what I'm wondering is, why do you think that it's important that teenagers should grow their understanding of law and of the court system? And how do you think it could impact their future? I think teenagers should pay attention to the law precisely because it will impact their future and their everyday lives. Even though the work of the Supreme Court and other courts in the country can seem intimidating, the fact is that they contain really important material and power over your rights at school, whether you have rights when you're searched in the hallway for drugs, um, that's a Supreme Court case, whether you have the right to print whatever you want in your student newspaper, you don't, that's a Supreme Court decision, and what kind of free speech rights you have when you're talking in a student election, that's also covered by court decisions. So that, that just is within the school realm, but there are countless other areas in which the law affects you and affects every other person in the country often on issues even weightier than that. So you'll eventually be an adult and a voting citizen, and then the court will affect you in areas of employment, whether you can be discriminated against at work, perhaps, or maybe you came over to the country when you were young and you aren't a citizen. The courts will decide whether you can stay in the country. That's an issue that the Supreme Court has considered. So to people who aren't yet interested in Supreme Court or any other area of the law, I recommend starting with what does kind of fascinate you. If you're interested in abortion and, and you have some awareness of the topic, read an abortion opinion and look up some words in that opinion that you don't understand. It'll become less intimidating to you. If you're interested in the gay marriage debate, read Obergefell or read really good coverage of the Obergefell decision from 2015. Gradually, it'll become less intimidating and you'll start to find yourself reading other opinions too. Anna, I know you've said before in other articles that you see the court is often quieter, quote unquote, than other areas of politics in terms of how they are like recorded and portrayed in the media. And I'm wondering if at some points you think this idea of quieter might be good. And I'm talking about in the context of right now, as we see the courts being at least politicized or at least talked a lot about in the media. Do you think that it is good at some points that it is quieter? Or do you think that the fact that they are seen as quieter disincentive for students or other people to learn more about the, the courts? I think there's a happy medium between the court being too loud and taking up every waking hour of our lives, hearing about the confirmations and the politics surrounding that, and then the court being too quiet and you're not understanding what's going on with the decisions. The ideal seems to me to be where cases, perhaps about the administrative state, that's an issue that's kind of boring, complex, and people don't understand. Normally that decision would um, be forgotten by a lot of people. But if you follow great Supreme Court reporters, they'll explain to you why it's relevant to your life, why it's important, who's on the bench affects that decision. That's the kind of awareness that's crucial about the court and that you don't see as much as you do with the Senate. A lot of teenagers are up on what their congressperson or, or senator is saying because speeches are constantly on Instagram or Snapchat. And the president, I mean, I don't even need to say anything about that, but 
with the Supreme Court, you need to make a little bit of an effort sometimes to understand why it's important. So earlier you stated how the Supreme Court affects different aspects of our day-to-day lives. So now I want to follow up on that question and ask you, which area of society do you think that Supreme Court decisions oftenly affect the most, whether it be social issues, whether it be economic issues or medical issues, just any aspect? Every decision has some kind of practical impact. The court might say something about employment benefits one day and about environmental laws the next. But the social issues are the ones that, because they affect millions of people and are so controversial, are the ones that come most easily to mind. So for a a newsletter called Wake Up to Politics, I recently wrote a quick piece about how a justice, Amy Coney Barrett, would rule on the big social issues. Just looking at some of her opinions on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals over the past few years, I found that she would likely limit abortion access, perhaps look to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which will be in front of the court in a few weeks, and would likely strike down any kind of liberal gun control laws under a Biden administration. So I think those are social issues to look out for, and those are real areas where a nomination would tip what happens in your everyday life. And obviously, what's interesting about both of the things we're doing is how youth-focused and youth-centric it is, right? It's about giving young people a platform and a voice and engaging them. But I think as Divya articulated, and Madeline, young people often don't think about the Supreme Court as something as important as Congress. What can we be doing as young people to be more engaged, or can we do on a societal level to make the Supreme Court appear as important as it is to young people from this age onward? I would say start by voting because usually the president nominates whoever is on the Supreme Court. But since President Trump has nominated Coney Barrett, I'm not sure there's like a direct way for young people to affect and have their voices heard on the court per se. But I always recommend that you stay in touch with the big Supreme Court decisions by reading the work of excellent reporters. Adam Liptak of the New York Times has coverage almost every day explaining why decisions are important for your life, explaining the intricate legal arguments, and uh, making it seem more like a fascinating puzzle than a boring kind of stack of papers. Dahlia Lithwick of Slate is also fantastic in that way and making things clear, as is Stephen Maisie of The Economist. So that's, that's like a reel of names, but they're really helpful. And it's an easy thing to do, to click on a newspaper article every now and then and see what's going on with one of the three branches of government listed in the Constitution. So start with that. Read the newspapers. And if you become fascinated with the law, then you can intern at a, at a local court, maybe aim to go to law school. There's just so many options. Anna, clearly you've learned and studied a lot about the law. And I feel like in the news lately, we've been hearing at least the new nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, being kind of labeled an originalist. And I'm wondering, kind of two parts. One, where do you fall on the spectrum of ideology in terms of thinking about the law? Usually I'm more of a, or I try to be a down the middle reporter than kind of an op-ed columnist when it comes to the court. That was a conscious decision I made early on. So originalism is usually the more conservative interpretive philosophy, where you read the Constitution based on how the words were understood by those Americans who ratified them which can be hundreds of years ago, or if you're reading an amendment was decades ago. Textualism is also a philosophy that Amy Coney Barrett subscribes to. You've heard that word where she looks at the dictionary, plain meaning definition of words instead of what legislators intended. And I I sort of subscribe to that. And then there's living constitutionalism, which is where 
a justice like perhaps Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She'd look at a word and see how maybe the meaning had changed from 100 years ago. Maybe it meant one thing then and another thing now. So I would say that I'm less of an originalist and more of a common law textualist, kind of like Elena Kagan, who's on the court, where precedent is quite important to me. I think it's important to sustain stability in the law and look back to past decisions. If they're wise, retain them, but without injecting too much of your own opinion into the law. So I'm sure you watched the first presidential debate. So when Chris Wallace confronted Joe Biden about his views on court packing. So I was wondering, given that this is the right of the president to have a very influential realm in this sort of stuff, do you support the idea of court packing? And how can this be used to change the kind of right-leaning partisanship in the Supreme Court? I'm still thinking about court packing. I don't have a solidified opinion. I worry that, as many people do, that it would destroy the legitimacy of the court beyond compare if the justices were seen as partisan tokens instead of neutral lawgivers. But at the same time, the legitimacy of the court is already kind of smashed because of the decisions by Senate Republicans and the president to block Merrick Garland's nomination a couple of years ago, and then to kind of break their word and nominate Coney Barrett now. So there's a lot of politics surrounding the Supreme Court that are not always there, and that's concerning. My follow-up question on that is the court's really confusing with a lot of legal jargon, as you mentioned before, right? And so how can we make this process seem a little less unintimidating generally, whether it's the process of nominating someone or or making sense of what packing the court even means or just cases in general? That was a goal I aimed for with the high school SCOTUS blog that I wrote for a couple of years, trying to demystify any kind of processes going on at the Supreme Court, which I've, again, described as quiet, just explaining what originalism and textualism mean. Those words come up all the time during confirmation hearings, or explaining the nomination process, who has the power to nominate a judge, the president, and what do the nominees usually look like. So in order to combat the use of jargon and any other kind of confusion, I just recommend perhaps that teenagers do their homework on the court, look for great resources, pay attention in AP Gov, ask questions of their teachers, and maybe even, as you guys have done with next-gen politics, for voting engagement and civics, maybe start similar groups about the Supreme Court and legal literacy. There aren't enough of those groups right now, in my opinion, and I think they would go a long way. And just to add on now to Isaiah's point directly, we read a lot after Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing that her final wish was that they waited until the election for the president to nominate a new justice. What do you think the impact of that comment potentially was, the validity of that comment? What, obviously hard to get into the psyche, but the intent there, knowing that, you know, the media has the potential to spin anything she says into a different story. With no disrespect to Justice Ginsburg, I think that if she wanted absolute control over who would replace her, then she would have to have retired when President Obama was in office. Her statement would mean something if the president and the other party intended to leave the seat open, but that's not realistic. And so I think her comment reflected her legacy on the bench for decades, how she's been a solidly liberal vote advocating for certain policies like equal protection for women and preserving the Affordable Care Act. She, she worried that a Republican nominee would undo that. But yeah, her comment was a little hollow, unfortunately, because she ended up passing away before she intended to, as, as strangely as that is to say. I'm wondering, with Amy Coney Barrett replacing Justice Ginsburg, how do you think that is going to affect Ginsburg's legacy 
and how future court cases could play about. I think that you can view Amy Coney Barrett as a clear opposite of Justice Ginsburg's, but you could also see some overlaps in some ways. So I'm wondering, how do you think that her legacy will continue or not continue in the hands of this new justice? Justice Ginsburg will always be remembered, I think, primarily for her women's rights opinions, like her opinion mandating that the Virginia Military Institute has to admit women because it's a state-funded school, or holding that benefits for a widow and a widower can't be different just because of the, the sex of the parent. Those kinds of decisions are not in danger of being overturned just because women's rights are just a fact of life these days. But certain decisions which Ginsburg promoted and championed might very well be overturned with a conservative vote replacing her. A lot of commentators think that a Justice Coney Barrett would perhaps be like Justice Thomas or Alito or Gorsuch, certainly in the conservative wing. And that that changes a lot of things. There's a challenge to the Affordable Care Act coming up, as I said. And so whereas Ginsburg voted to uphold the law in its entirety, Coney Barrett has written in a law review article that she was skeptical of that decision. Whereas Ginsburg famously dissented in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, a decision which struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, Coney Barrett might not have done the same thing. Coney Barrett will likely, by necessity, overturn a lot of decisions which Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined or or looked up to because one was a liberal justice and one is a solidly conservative one. I'm wondering, I guess I have two questions. First, Looking at the way the media has portrayed the confirmation process and the nomination process of Amy Coney Barrett, do you feel like there's a sense of like Democratic candidates have gotten an influx of money in their campaigns? One could attribute this probably to like the alarmist nature after RBG's death. And the second question I have is, do you think that this process as a whole could benefit either presidential candidate as we approach the election? I think the process probably will benefit Trump more because Republicans generally tend to care more about the Supreme Court. That's a legacy of Roe versus Wade, that 1972 decision that granted women a pretty broad right to have an abortion. Since then, Republicans have been using that in elections and and deeply, sincerely caring about it since then. Democrats have not had a similar quarrel with the court, really. And so I think now that Republicans have an opportunity perhaps to overturn Roe or severely roll it back over the next few years, they'll be excited to have that opportunity. As for whether there's over-alarm about the court, I don't think the stakes are really being overstated too much. Having a six-justice majority on the court is significant, a six-justice conservative majority, just for the reasons I've mentioned before about potential liberal landmark decisions being overturned or conservative ones kind of advanced and strengthened. Where I'm seeing over-alarm is where people are kind of doing guilt by association tactics with Amy Coney Barrett. Like if she spoke to one conservative hard right person over the course of her life, they're attributing that person's views to her or they're freaking out about her Catholic background. I think in some cases that's not warranted. I think her Catholicism is relevant, perhaps, but it's not by all means her entire jurisprudence. So it's a mixed bag. And on that note, in her confirmation hearing and also just in other times she's spoken, right, there's been a lot of compilations put out there in the past two weeks. She's spoken a lot about leaving personal opinion out of her rulings and also allowing major social change to be legislated right? She claims that it's not the role of the court and that's what she doesn't view her role as. But a lot of people are skeptical. What are your thoughts on whether she'll actually uphold these kind of promises to the American people? I trust that she means that. Every 
judge says that in their confirmation hearing and seems to mean it to some extent. Every judge says in their confirmation hearings, most judges, that they'll uphold precedent and they'll uphold Roe because it's settled precedent. Those are things that you say when you're about to be on the court so that you get nominated. Once you're on the court, you don't really have promises to the American people in your head. You're just kind of looking at the text in front of you and a lot of factors go into your interpretation, like your ideology and whether you're an originalist, a conservative, a textualist. So I highly doubt that she would be a restrained type of judge or as restrained as she says, she'll probably be willing to strike down legislation. We'll just have to see. It's very, it's very difficult to tell. If you could be any prior Supreme Court justice throughout history, who would you choose to take on their persona and why would you choose that person? I know which court I would not like to be on. That's the one that comes to mind for me because there's a fantastic book about the court called The Brethren that talks about the court during the 1970s, around when they were deciding Roe versus Wade, when Chief Justice Berger presided over the court, appointed by Nixon. And that was an incredibly contentious court where nobody trusted each other. Everyone undermined the Chief Justice and thought he was incompetent. It doesn't sound like a great workplace environment. As for which justice I'd want to be or who I'd like to follow, a lot of people say this. I'm going to repeat them. Robert Jackson, he was a Supreme Court justice who never went to law school or never graduated, served as the prosecutor in Nuremberg after the Holocaust, and was just an excellent justice. He dissented in Korematsu, the case where federal government interned thousands of Japanese citizens during World War II. But even more special for me is just his writing. I care so much about writing and making sure that sentences sound beautiful and connect with each other and have alliteration and include references to previous texts and books. And Robert Jackson was the single best writer the court has ever seen. One of the best writers ever, I think, even in his speeches at Nuremberg. You just have to listen to them to appreciate it. But he's speaking like poetry about how three or all the great nations stayed the hand of vengeance and allowed justice to happen instead of just summarily executing the Nazi leaders. Brilliant man, miraculous writer. I, I would kill to write like him, and I'll never be happy until I start looking like his writing. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.